This episode is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is reinventing men's basics. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I've been smashing and testing the hell out of a bunch of their stuff, and I'm going to focus on their underwear as one example. I've been wearing their Air Knit X 5-inch boxer briefs for a while now, and I absolutely love them. I've used them to hike in national parks like Big Bend. I use them to record podcasts. They can be used for anything. They're engineered to keep you dry, cool, and comfortable to the end of your workout or workday. The fabric is soft, lightweight microfiber, which maximizes airflow and stretches in every direction. It's breathable, moisture-wicking, and odor-fighting, which is great for a bridge troll like me. Here's what a few critics have to say. New York Times slash Wirecutter evaluated Mack Weldon's 18-hour jersey boxer brief. Here we go. Quote, our testers seemed almost conflicted about how fancy they felt while wearing these boxer briefs. Quote, these are lovely. You put them on and you feel rich, one tester said. This underwear makes me want to waste money on a hotel room and fancy booths to seduce my already wife and spoil her right, added another. Now to Esquire. Quote, an expertly executed pair of briefs from a brand that does not better than almost anyone else. End quote. Now to Men's Health. Quote, Mac Weldon took the process seriously with over 10,000 hours to perfect the best underwear money can buy. Seriously, this one checks all the boxes you should be looking for when purchasing underwear. End quote. Now back to me. Mac Weldon also covers a lot more than underwear. They have socks, shirts, underwear, hoodies, polos, active shorts. They check all the boxes. Mac Weldon promises comfort and a consistent fit for all of your basics. So check them out and try them out. If you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can actually keep them and they will still refund you, no questions asked. So you have nothing to lose. Again, my favorite so far is probably the Air Knit X 5-inch boxer briefs. It seems like the 18-hour jersey boxer brief is one of the most popular. So check them out. To get 20% off of your first order, visit macweldon.com slash timtim and enter promo code timtim. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N dot com slash Tim Tim and use promo code Tim Tim. Mac Weldon, reinventing men's basics. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. My God, am I in love with 8sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer. More than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep, and I'm a member of that sad group. Temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep, and heat has always been my nemesis. I've suffered for decades tossing and turning, throwing blankets off, putting them back on, and repeating ad nauseum. But now... I am falling asleep in record time, faster than ever. Why? Because I'm using a simple device called the Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep. It's the easiest and fastest way to sleep at the perfect temperature. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking to offer the most advanced but most user-friendly solution on the market. I polled all of you guys on social media about the best tools for sleep, enhancing sleep, and... 8sleep was by far and away the crowd favorite. I mean, people were just raving fans of this. So I used it and here we are. Add the Pod Pro cover to your current mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. It also splits your bed in half so your partner can choose a totally different temperature. My girlfriend runs hot all the time. She doesn't need 
cooling. She loves the heat. And we can have our own bespoke temperatures on either side, which is exactly what we're doing. Now, for me, and for many people, the result, eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by up to 40%, and get more restful sleep overall. I can personally attest to this because I track it in all sorts of ways. It's the total solution for enhanced recovery, so you can take on the next day feeling refreshed. And now, my dear listeners, that's you guys, you can get $250 off of the Pod Pro cover. That's a lot. Simply go to 8 Sleep dot com slash Tim or use code Tim. That's eight all spelled out E I G H T sleep dot com slash Tim or use coupon code Tim T I M eight sleep dot com slash Tim for two hundred and fifty dollars off your pod pro cover. Optimal minimal at this altitude I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is in a perfect time. Cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I'm thrilled to have our guest today, Juliana Furci, on Instagram at Julie Fungi. That's G I U L I F U N G I. Juliana is founder and executive director of the Fungi Foundation, established in 2012, the world's first nonprofit dedicated solely to fungi. She is a Harvard University associate, Dame of the Order of the Star of Italy, which is one of the best honorary titles I've ever heard in my life, co-chair of the IUCN Fungal Conservation Committee, mother, author of several titles, including a series of field guides to Chilean fungi, and contributor to numerous publications on the environment, such as the first State of the World's Fungi Report, Biodiversidad de Chile, Patrimonio y Desafíos, and the IBPA award-winning book, Fantastic Fungi. Juliana has worked for the fungi since 1999 and in the nonprofit sector for the last 17 years. She has held consulting positions in U.S. philanthropic foundations, as well as full-time positions in international marine conservation NGOs and Chilean environmental NGOs. You can find her on Instagram, at Julie Fungi. Again, that's spelled G-I-U-L-I, Fungi, and at Fungi Foundation. The website is ffungi.org. Juliana, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Tim. It's an honor and a pleasure. I thought we would start at the beginning because you represent quite an international cocktail. You're born in the UK of a Chilean mother and an Italian father. How does that all come together? How does that happen? Well, the short and unsweet answer to that is that dictatorship and exile leads to that. So my mother was a victim of the coup in 1973 here in Chile. She was a political prisoner for a year, incarcerated and tortured, and then made to leave. And she left Chile, arrived in Italy, where she met my father, and then moved to London with a scholarship to study a master's degree. So I am a product of exile. Wow. I have many follow-up questions. So we're going to work in reverse order. What did your mother study for her master's? My mother is a geographer and an economist. So she has always studied things that have to do with decentralization. Why was she 
persecuted under the regime after the coup in Chile? Because, first of all, she thought differently. And that's one of the biggest sins in these regimes. She was a student and she, from a very young age, was active in politics, in student fora, and really in just creating discussion. When she fled or when she left, how did she choose where to go? No, there's no choice. She was incarcerated for 365 days and then given two weeks to leave. So that all boils down to where you can get to. And she jumped over to Argentina, jumped over the Andes. She didn't jump, but she flew over to Argentina. But Argentina was also under really unstable political regimes, various dictatorships. And from there, she was able to travel to Italy, where she stayed for two years, and then to England. So really, there's no choosing. Now, did Italy come out of a contact in Argentina? I'm just wondering why Italy specifically, that country. I know that in places like Buenos Aires, of course, you have a very long history of emigration from Italy, from Spain, from Germany. Is that how the country Italy itself as a destination came up? No, it wasn't through Argentina. It was because her mother, my grandmother, and aunt had already left Chile and had established in Italy. The reason is Italy was open to receiving refugees. Mm. Italy had a policy of welcoming people who were fleeing the regime here. And so did other countries like Sweden, you know, and, and other places around the world. So it's more to do with how Italy was open to receiving people. How did and this may not seem germane to <laughs> much of what we'll explore later, but it is germane because it relates to how you became who you are. How did your parents meet? My father was a student in Rome. I come from a very small village in Calabria, my father's family. My grandparents didn't know how to read or write. They were contadini, so producers of olive oil, wine, salami, subsistence living. And my father left his village and went to study by day and work by night and was studying when, you know, the Italian Communist Party and Socialist Party were welcoming all these Chilean refugees. And he met my mother during a welcome party for Chilean refugees, and they fell in love. Yeah. And that was it. And that was it. In your life, you were born in the UK. How did you end up being born in the UK? Because my mother was offered this scholarship to study in London, she left with my father, and that's where the magic happened, in council <laughs> housing in North London. <laughs> And for you then, just geographically, because of course you're back in Chile now. No, I'm not back, Tim. Sorry, I have, we have to say this. So my mother came back, but I didn't come back here. I was born and I came. So we're another generation of uprooted people. I didn't come back. How did you end up then where you are now? I was born in England right, and grew up in England. And when my mother came back, I came with her. Ah. But I never left Chile to come back here. I was born out, 
outside during her exile. That's right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So there's an untold story there of many of the offspring, children of refugees and exiles who also have their life truncated in some paths because their parents can return to their homeland. And you come with them because who are you to stop them from you know, coming back to where they never chose to leave from? How old were you when you, not returned to, but traveled to Chile? Almost 15. What was that like going from the UK to Chile? Because I'm no cosmopolitan connoisseur of all cultures, but I happen to have been to both countries. They're not identical. They are definitely not identical. It was a challenge, but I was always very conscious that I was in no place to be an impediment for my mother to come back to the country she never chose to leave. So I came in total humble respect of making her return smooth. And was it smooth? It wasn't smooth. It was very difficult. She came back to a country she didn't recognize. She came back to parents that were old and in the case of my grandfather, ill. And she came back to a country that was disjunct, a country that was looking for this sort of neo-capitalist development way of doing politics and commerce, but not quite getting there. So it was hard. And did you then study in Chile or did you study and do your undergraduate and so on elsewhere? I stayed in school here with very difficult stories. So my mother had never told me that there were people who liked the dictator. So I got to school here and people would ask me, you know, where are you from? I said, I'm from London. And why were you there? Well, my mom was a refugee. And I remember a classmate saying, oh, your mother was a terrorist. You know, she should have been killed and, and having a go at me in the classroom. And I remember running back home and saying to my mother, how did you not warn me? that there were people who liked him. You know, I had never, ever in my life encountered people who liked the dictator. So that was challenging. I, I stuck in school and then I went at the end of my schooling and it was time to choose undergraduate studies. All I knew is that I wanted to give back. In some way, I wanted to give back. And at first I thought that it was through humans and I, <laughs> I, I went to university to study social working. And about a year into that, I was really, really clear that it wasn't humans. Humans weren't my thing. And so I then realized that it was nature. It had to do with giving back in some sort of way. And I thought, okay, let's get humans into green spaces, right? So I tried a second career, an undergraduate career at landscaping and ecology. And it was still so many humans. It was like planning parks <laughs> in urban areas. There were a lot of homo sapiens involved. And I was like, no, this isn't it. And finally, I said, okay, I'm just going to try plants in the water. Like there will be no humans there underwater. And I studied aquaculture. And that's where I finished my undergraduate studies in Southern Chile in Northern Patagonia. I went to a, a university in a city where I knew nobody. And it was, I managed to finish it. And it was on that journey that I got to where I am now. 
So how do you hop? Well, let me ask first, is aquaculture a vibrant and widespread endeavor in Chile? Because I I have very little familiarity. I know, for instance, in New Zealand, it's a huge focal point. But uh, in Chile, I would imagine with the coastline, perhaps that's also the case. Unfortunately, Chile is a country that has housed open net pen salmon farming in its waters. So for your audience and our audience today to understand, aquaculture is basically the cultivation of aquatic resources, aquatic species. So it could be algae, can be shellfish, so mollusks, or fish, finfish. And Chile is one of the largest producers of farmed salmon in the world. Salmon aren't native to the Southern Hemisphere, and therefore the aquaculture industry of um, salmon in Chile come with tremendous environmental and social impact. But it means also that there is a vibrant aquaculture industry. And so there were university careers. And I studied aquaculture and got into algae, seaweed farming. And that was really what I did my thesis on and what I graduated doing and ended up curiously working in NGOs against the salmon farming industry and its negative impacts, not against the labor opportunities, but against their environmental practices. You know, I should really know this by now. So I, I'm going, usually I blame it on my audience and I say, for those of my audience who may not know, could you define NGO? I've, I've long thought that I've understood what NGO means, but perhaps just to confirm that, could you, could you <laughs> define what an NGO is? NGO is the acronym for a non-governmental organization. organization. So a nonprofit. It's an organization that represents civil society and that has a place at tables recognized as where people organize and find a voice that represents them. So could you give me an example, or maybe they're one and the same. Is it fair to say that not all nonprofits are NGOs, but all NGOs are nonprofits? Or are there for-profit NGOs? No, there is never a for-profit NGO. NGOs we measure our success not in revenue of money in the bank, but of durable change. That's our measure of success, the change we can make. So where did you go or how did you go from aquaculture to fungi? How does that happen? Oh, it's a funny one, Tim. So I was in university and I remember one morning walking along the corridors and there was a poster stuck on the corridor that said, volunteers needed to look for fox poop in forests. And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. Fox poop. I really love scat and poop. And we can get into that afterwards. Like so much grows out of it. Um, <laughs> and so, of course, I, I volunteered. And of course, I was the only one who volunteered. And I ended up getting the, the volunteer position and traveling with my professor, Jaime Jimenez, who studies foxes and other animals. It's uh, a great name also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we traveled to Chiloé Island in southern Chile. And what we had to do was we had to put these big cages out to capture 
non-violently, but to capture and trap the foxes. We would put radio transmitter collars on them and then we would free them and walk around the forest collecting poop and also with a huge antenna trying to find a signal to triangulate their position using radio telemetry. So this is really old school technology. Today, you would just put like a GPS chip on them, you know, on a collar. But this was, you know, 20 something years ago, and we're walking around bushwhacking with a huge antenna and trying to get some sound in to see where their position is. And at the same time, picking up all the poop we could find. And then I would go back to the laboratory and dry the poop and then sort of open it up and see what they had eaten. That was my job. But it was on that trip that I was walking along a path with this antenna And I saw a huge mushroom on a tree trunk and I wanted to know who it was. And there were no books on Chilean fungi and it was a lightning bolt. It was like, I'm going to do this. And something happened that I have never been able to stop, even if I've tried. But I got home and Online shopping had just begun and Barnes and Noble had the opportunity to ship books to the US. And then I'd have somebody, you know, ship them to Chile. And then Amazon was a thing too. And I bought every book I could find on fungi. Of course, Paul Stamets books were the first ones I found. And I would devour everything I could read. It was that one mushroom who I wanted to know that, that triggered it all. I love that you use who with the fungi. I really, really like that. And I must ask, because I just need to know, it'll bother me if I don't, what was the objective of the research with the fox scat and radio telemetry? We were measuring how the foxes were being displaced due to logging of native forest. Mm. So... As the forest was being lost, habitats destroyed, where were the foxes going? Um, and they were going uphill, up the mountain, trying to get into more and more remote places. But then, you know, you get to the tree line and, and there's not much more food for them. So we, we wanted to know what they were eating as they were moving. And there were a lot of rodents they were eating and a lot of really beautiful beetle exoskeletons. You find rainbows in fox scat. I have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an art opportunity for some aspiring <laughs> graphic artist out there. And as you tell the story of seeing this mushroom on the tree trunk, being unable to find a book that covers, that describes or catalogs Chilean fungi, for me, that begs the question, in general, Why does it seem that mushrooms and fungi have been so understudied? There are two main reasons. And the first one is because fungi have always been associated to the pagan, to paganism, right? They're organisms that are associated with rot, with decomposition. They often have textures and odors that aren't pleasant to all. They grow associated to humid and sometimes dark places. So that's one reason. And and of course, their fantastical properties at altering states of consciousness, which for the Catholic Church was something very scary and very dangerous. 
And on the other hand, they were thought to be plants and they were thought to be inferior plants, which is even worse. You know, they were treated as this group of organisms with moss and with ferns that were just very minorly important with respect to vascular plants that form trees and, you know, beautiful flowers. And so they were discarded. So you mentioned Paul. Paul is a huge fan of yours, as uh, we as we both know. You have certainly, from that first encounter with that mushroom on the tree, learned a lot. And I'd love to hear, within Chile, what you found that strikes you as as unique or interesting with respect to mycology? There are two ways to to answer this question. First of all, my journey is forged on the absence of opportunity in Chile. So when I discovered fungi and discovered that I couldn't really find much more about them. There was nowhere to study here in Chile, nowhere at all. I had a choice. My choice was I could leave Chile and I could go back to England. I could study mycology. I could become a researcher, really, really enrich my knowledge. Or I could use my life's effort to make sure that nobody else would ever be faced with that decision again and use my life's effort so that nobody would ever, ever have to feel they had to leave their country if they loved mycology. And that was my choice. And that's where I found I could give back. So really what startled me about Chile, first of all, was the absence of opportunity and the opportunity to create opportunity. And in terms of the fungal diversity of Chile, everything is fantastic. Every encounter is sublime, the colors, the textures, the possibility to walk in a forest in fall and in an hour encounter over a hundred different species, different sizes, different contextures, textures, smells, different functions, and ultimately this opportunity to coincide with these most amazing organisms in the world. Yeah. Have you discovered any new species of fungi? Yes, I have. I've had the honor and pleasure of coinciding for the first time as a human with a fungus. I've named two formally. One is a very special fungus called Amanita galactica. Mm. It's, it's an Amanita that grows in mixed monkey puzzle trees with Southern Beach, so Araucaria with Nothophagus. And it's a very, very old species, Tim. It's an elder species. It's a species that was around when the supercontinent Gondwana existed, when the continent still hadn't drifted apart. So we know that it's a species that originates when that huge landmass that created the Southern Hemisphere was still stuck together. How do you know that in the sense that unlike, say, stuff, like you could take a snuff tray in Atacama and do carbon yeah. dating, but yeah. with, with fungi, that is not the tool that you would use. Is it looking at, this is a term I only recently learned, the phylogeny and somehow 
mapping it to the span of humankind. I would just love to know how humans have confidence that that is the case. We've convened as humans that we organize life based on common ancestry. So we know, for example, that fungi are more closely related to animals than to plants because we have a more recent ancestor. And curiously, this is a small parenthesis to what we're talking about, but that common ancestor between fungi and animals are the opistocons. So it's a cell that has a posterior flagellum, namely a sperm, for example. Sperm cell is an opistocont. Now, there are some fungi that have that same type of cell. There's one cell with a posterior flagellum. So that's how we know that we're more closely related because both fungi and animals have that type of cell that's like a sperm. Now, with Amanita Galactica, we know how old she is or he is because the most recent common ancestor that we have discovered is extremely old. So we build relationships and timing of these relationships based on common ancestry and the closest relation. What was the term you used for the supercontinent? Gondwana. Gondwana. Is that the same as Pangaea or is Pangaea? No, they're not the same. So Pangaea was one big supercontinent that first split into two. Laurasia that then divided to form the Northern Hemisphere, and Gondwana, that then divided Uh, to form the Southern Hemisphere. I see. Thank you. Yeah. Learning so much. (laughs) I'm learning so much, and I'm going to dig further. So with, say, Amanita Galactica, you mentioned he or she. Now, is that just a personal preference as to which pronoun you choose, or are fungi gendered? I don't know. They are not gendered, but they're not its either. They're not objects. So if we're talking about an animal, we wouldn't really call it an it, right? If we're talking right. about plants, we wouldn't either. And I honestly cannot, and I'm very uncomfortable with objectifying any species of living organism. I just can't call them it, really. Of course, this is a very sensitive subject in a lot of places now, but in in English, this is where we fail in a sense because we have to choose a pronoun. We could use they, of course, but then you have something like Chinese where it's like the pronunciation, at least the writing is different, but you have ta, ta, ta. It's the same pronoun regardless of who or what you're talking about effectively. So it's, it's a lot easier to navigate. How did you choose the name? And also, I'm I'm not familiar with many Amanita. I'm only familiar with Amanita muscaria. And pretty much everyone is familiar visually with that because it is the most commonly depicted sort of red cap with white dots. What does Amanita galactica look like and how did you name it? So Amanita galactica is a little smaller than... Amanita muscaria, which is the fly agaric. Um, some people know it as, you know, the Smurf mushroom. Some people yeah. call it. The Santa Claus mushroom. Santa Claus mushroom. Actually, Soma. Amanita muscaria is the god Soma in Vedic cultures. It's a, it's a very, very divine fungus, and it's the oldest known hallucinogen to humanity. 
huge respect to Amanita Muscaria. Amanita Galactica has a black cap with white scales. And I can let you in on a funny story. People think that it's really romantic to find a new species. I was actually in the car driving. And of course, you know, one's eye is pretty used to catching that fungal fuzz. You know, there's there's something, there's a vibe in fungi that's different from soil. It's different from plants. That visual vibe came through and I stopped the car. It was snowing. It was freezing cold. And I saw this black mushroom cap with white dots. And it was like looking into a starry night. And I immediately said, this is Amanita Galactica. It was instant. It was looking into the galaxy. And I was in the car with two other people and nobody would get out because it was snowing and raining and literally freezing. And I was like, oh, I'm getting out. Of course I'm getting out. And I spent quite a while with the mushrooms there and had the sense that it was something new. It was in an old habitat and a very pristine habitat. And so, yeah, it was called Amanita Galactica. And then the journey begins of finding out if somebody else has ever coincided. And that's a long journey. You know, you have to look at records of people finding Amanitas. And if they did, what were those Amanita, you know, what did they look like microscopically? You know, what was their DNA? And over time, it became evident that it was a species nobody had ever coincided with before. So what is the protocol? I'm just imagining you're, you're in winter clothing, you're driving along, you hop out, your friends are like, oh God, how long is this going to take? <laughs> Freezing our asses off. Exactly. And, and uh, I've, I've been to Portillo and some places in Chile and it gets cold. And do you pluck the mushroom, the fruiting body, and then go back to the lab and uh, I'm not sure if it would be spore prints or what the current process is. How do you go about determining if it is a new species? So the first thing to do, I have a particular method, which is I like to spend time with every species I encounter. So I get to their level. So I'm one of those people who lie on the floor and I will lie down. I will First, you have to feel, Tim, because if you're going to describe, you have to feel. So there's a lot of looking without touching. There's a lot of smelling without touching, observing the surroundings. Who is it growing with? What trees are close? Because fungi are specific to their substrate. They never grow and live separate from a symbiont. So what trees are around, are there more? And then clearing begins, clearing around the mushroom, observing what happens. If I touch it, does it change? Does it change in color? Does it stain? Does it break? There's a lot of that. There's a lot of very detailed feeling with the senses of touch, of seeing, of smelling observing if you know animals come out of it or don't. And we don't pluck them. We will, when you're doing scientific collecting, you will try to pop it out, making sure that nothing remains in the soil. So you will dig a bit with your fingers and you will make sure you get to the bottom of this sporum, of this macroscopic body and pick it up, observing every single step. Because there are some 
mushrooms that you touch and they change color, that you touch and you lose a texture, that you pick up and it breaks. And whether it's hollow, whether it's stuffed, whether it's solid, really important features, whether when you pick it up and it starts going dry, it changes color is a really important feature. Everything is important. So there's a lot of sensuality in Mm. that first encounter. And then you carefully wrap it in something that, that doesn't scratch it, or sometimes you can just hold it in a basket, making a little bed. And we go back to, if you're lucky, you're in a place with electricity. I I am a field mycologist that explores pristine areas of the world. So sometimes it's just going back to camp. We go back and another process of observation begins, but now opening that mushroom up, cutting it. Again, what's inside? Is it solid inside? Did it change? Does it smell? It's really a sensual process. And after you write down all these notes, you take photographs with size references, you proceed to dry it. Now you have to dry it in a very specific way in which DNA isn't degraded. Now we can't cook them. 80, 90% of a, a mushroom is water. So it's a process that's really important. Otherwise it will rot. And if you have electricity, you'll use a food dehydrator. Now, traditionally, because I explore pristine places for fungi and there's no electricity, the drying part is the biggest challenge. And believe it or not, nobody has invented a really efficient field dehydrator yet. So I put them in my sleeping bag and I normally share a tent with my fungi, my collected fungi, and use body heat to dry them or silica gel. And then once they're stored dry, you look at the microscope for microscopic features and you extract DNA for sequencing. Now, before it used to be the microscopic features that would determine the relationships between species. Today, we know that those microscopic characteristics aren't enough to determine relatedness and we use DNA. So based on those DNA sequences and databases that exist of all these sequences, you know whether it's been discovered or not, and then you proceed to describe. I see. So you have the equivalent of like an Interpol DNA database for (laughs) fungi. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is, invariably, Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the 4-Hour Body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula. 
which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash Tim. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Tim. Are you drinking mate? Yes, I am. Oh, I'm so jealous. (laughs) So jealous. (laughs) Now, do you call that straw? Okay, for people who can't see the visual... You're holding a gourd. It has, I don't know if it's if it's covered in carved leather. No, it's pumpkin, carved pumpkin. Yeah. Calabasa with Calabasa. with with some ornamentation on the outside. It has a, it has a metal top, so it looks kind of like a baseball that has the very top cut off. And then it's hollowed out. You have yerba mate in there, which looks kind of like chopped spinach to the untrained eye, which you then what is the word in English? Steep? Sebar, right? Sebar. And then you have the straw. Do you call that a bombilla? Bombilla. Una bombilla, yes. Una bombilla. Yeah. yeah. So that you stick a straw into this and the straw has holes in it. It's a metal straw. So the straw does the filtering. That really brings back the memories. I used to live in Argentina. So I drank mate almost every day, whether it was Cruz de Malta, Rosamonte, con palo, oh, sin palo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. You lived in Argentina, Tim? I did. Don't hold it against me. <laughs> I won't. I won't. But I'm really curious as to why. I was spending time in Panama in 2005. I think it was 2005. It might have been 2004. And I became friends with someone who is half Panamanian and half Argentine in Panama City. And... His family had been there a very long time, living in Panama, and he had spent a lot of time in Argentina, and I had no plans for my next step. I was letting the wind carry me at the time. And he said, you need to visit Argentina. I said, why do I need to visit Argentina? And he said, they have the best wine in the world, best steak in the world, the most beautiful women in the world, and you can live for pennies on the dollar. And I said, well, that's a, that's a, pretty, good, that's a pretty good pitch. And went to Argentina, planning to be there for four weeks. And I was just dying one day in the middle of summer. It was so humid. And I was walking down this pedestrian walkway called Avenida Florida, which is a peatonal. And I'm walking down this pedestrian walkway, which is like an arcade. And like the Santa Monica promenade for people who have ever been to that walking down and there was a tango shop blaring music, but I could feel the air conditioning coming out of the tango shop. And so I walked in and I'm just loitering. I'm waiting for a friend to get out of a class, a Spanish class. And ultimately the woman who was working there, this chain smoking older woman was very upset or she wasn't upset. She was annoyed that I was, clearly not going to buy anything. And she was like, hey, pibe, pibe is like kid. You know? <laughs> <laughs> pibe, pibe. 
she said, if you're going to sit here, you might as well buy a ticket to a tango class upstairs. And so I did for 10, I think it was 10 pesos. And I became wow. obsessed with tango and I danced and stayed there for nine months. Tango, up, that, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I ended up competing and doing all this stuff. Oh, so wow. I, yeah. So that's I have, so fantastic. I. It's great. It's great. So I haven't, I haven't danced tango in probably 10 plus years, but that is what took me to Argentina. And I drank mate all the time. And I actually had something called mate leo from Brazil this morning, which I had the instantized mate, but I was thinking to myself this morning, I'm like, this just isn't the same. The instant mate is not, not the same. No, I have to send you a mate. I'm going to the U.S. next month, so I'm going oh, to take you a mate gourd. I'm going to take. Oh, I promise here. No, amazing. it's. I gifted Pablo Paul. Yeah, I'm this one too. I wonder if he uses it. I have to get back to that one. Oh, <laughs> yeah. If he doesn't, he could just mail me his. I no, uh, no. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm sending you a mate. You have to. It's so good uh, for your health. I love mate. People <laughs> people ask me all the time. We're getting off topic here, but you know, what is your favorite smart drug? And I, I, I the brain's a very sensitive instrument, so I don't. I, I try not to yeah. bludgeon it too often. But for me, yerba mate is absolutely my favorite stimulant. And you know, the Argentines will say that there's mateina, which is different from cafeína. I don't think that's true. <laughs> Uh, but my understanding is that mate has not just caffeine, but also theobromine as found in dark chocolate and theophylline as found in green tea. So you get the pharmacokinetics of it are very, very interesting in the sense that you don't just get this one peak and then tail, you get seemingly at least three peaks and tails, which for me allows me to write for several hours. Whereas in contrast, drinking a cup of coffee and I love coffee. But I will, I'm a fast metabolizer and I will have this very rapid peak within maybe 20, 25 minutes and then I'll feel tired. And I think it's worth mentioning that there is also an amazing ritual around drinking mate. Yes. Obliges you to share your mate and really creates kinship, brotherhood, sisterhoods. It's important to our cultures. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And also, also side note, at least in Argentina at the time, there was a line, you could ask someone if they wanted to, you know, tomar un mate or is mate, I'm forgetting, is it masculine or feminine? Uh, So you could ask if, if somebody asked you if they want, if you wanted to, you know, to take a mate, in their apartment. That was like, hey, come upstairs for a drink kind of thing. (laughs) So, yeah, it's a very deep culture of mate with the gauchos and everything. I mean, it's, uh, and it's, and it's different in, you you go to Argentina, if you go to Uruguay, it's slightly different. The gourds. And the gourds, the gourds are different too. So I'm drinking, this is a Uruguayan mate that has a wide mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Brings back the memories, really brings back the memories. So you, Mentioned, I think, two species. Was it two, two species? Yeah. What is the other? So the second species is called Cortinarius chlorosplendidus. Chloro is green and splendidus is splendid. It's a beautiful green mushroom that has a great story to it. I have not only found new species to science, but I found some new species to Chile. And there's a way of finding them that's quite amusing to many. And this is how I found 
Cortinarius chlorosplendidus. And of course, you know, you're in the forest, you're hiking with, you know, mycologists and you have to go have a pee. Of course, right? nature calls and you go behind a tree and there you go. You're there, you know, you're like, oh, look, there's a green mushroom. <laughs> and oh, it's new to science. And so I found Cortinarius chlorosplendidus while taking the pee break in the forest uh, with a with my a mycologist from Kew Gardens, Tula Niskanen. So I'm like, Tula, wait for me, I'll be right back. And then I'm, I'm coming back, I'm like, Tula, look, this is a green mushroom. She's like, but where did you find it? I said, look, I was having a pee behind the tree and it was there. <laughs> so do you, do you have colleagues who have spent like decades going on the expeditions to find new species and they're like, God damn it, Juliana, what, what next? She's going to go to find a sandwich and look behind, you know, the hot dog vendor and find a new species. I can imagine. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. you're just a good luck charm. They, they, t- they, they keep with them. It's the mate. If you drink enough mate, you have to stop more often. You have to stop and pee, and it, it definitely sharpens your visual senses. Uh, where is Q Gardens? That's K-E-W? Yeah. K-E-W, Kew Gardens. It's a Royal Botanic Garden in England, in Richmond, and it houses the world's largest fungarium, the largest collection of dried fungi in the world. And it has the largest collection of holotypes, which are the actual physical dried mushroom from which a species was described. So, Amanita Galactica has a holotype, which is the exact mushroom I got out of the car to, to feel when I first encountered and to collect. And so Q is very important in mycology. Huh. Holotype, like H-O-L-O, like wholeness. Wholeness, yeah. Yeah, like holistic, holotropic, holotype. You can split a holotype to form an isotype, okay. which is part of that holotype. Ah, so the, the isotype would be like taking an arm or a leg off of a human? Is that, yes. is that the equivalent? It's holo- yeah, it's like taking, this brings us to something really interesting, and, and it's the fact that the mushroom isn't the entire fungus. Right. Now, we're all talking a lot about mycelium lately, right? And so mycelium would be like the body. If we do a parallel with a tree, the mycelium is the tree and the mushroom is like the apple of the apple tree. Right. So when we see mushrooms on the first floor, we may be seeing 20 mushrooms spread out, but they may be from one same individual, one mycelium. So it might be like seeing 20 apples. It comes from one tree. The problem is we, don't, we never see the tree. So if we walk into a forest and it's full of Amanita muscaria, you know, this red mushroom with white dots, we have no way of knowing how many individuals are there. Right. It might be one individual. And that's why we know that the largest living organism on earth is a fungus. It's the, hmm. the humongous fungus that's in Oregon. It's one mycelium, one genetic body that covers 900 acres and produces thousands of mushrooms every year, right? Mm. But it's one mycelium. 
That's also true, I want to say. I don't know if the location is Colorado, but for certain aspen groves, I want to say are also one gigantic biomass. Yes. That's Absolutely so, right. It's so incredible to try to wrap your head around. Yeah. Question for you, as we think about, or just hold as a bookmark, this description of the mushrooms being the apples on the tree. Mm-hmm. The fruiting bodies. Okay, mm-hmm. so, so various animals are attracted to fruits. They eat these fruits, they spread the seeds, they help propagate the lives of these, these species, right? So we are symbionts in that way. How would you explain why mushrooms as fruiting bodies, the equivalent of apples, might have hallucinogenic properties? Since if we look at, say, serotonin, it's a very old neurotransmitter, and Mm -hmm. the serotonin receptors are very old. And so you'd certainly, many animals, if not all, I don't know, above my pay grade, but would would experience some of these hallucinogenic effects, like the reindeer in Lapland who (laughs) eat Amanita and so on. How do you explain that? Is it... Well, I'm not even going to hazard a guess. I would just love to know because there are people who have hypothesized or speculated that the hallucinogenic effects of some plants are a basically an insecticide or a yeah. pesticide. But that that seems to contradict the purpose of a fruiting body. Putting aside or maybe not putting aside, also there are many many uh, fungi that are extremely toxic if ingested. But how should one think about the the analogy of the apple and the mushroom and factor in the fact that you have hallucinogenic mushrooms, you have poisonous mushrooms, and so on? One thing that we're learning, and at the Fungi Foundation, we are participating in a phylogenomic study of the genus Thylosibi with the Natural History Museum of Utah. And what we're learning, so we're, we're not looking at the hallucinogenic compounds and the chemistry of the fungi in detail, we're looking at the whole genus. So if if we look at the genus Psilocybe, we are discovering, because this is all very new research, we are discovering that it's very old, that it precedes humanity, that it originates most probably in Africa over 25 million years ago, and that it has radiated across the world because of animal vectors, because plants have moved as well. Now, the relationship of a species with a compound isn't necessarily direct. There is psilocybin in species that aren't, sorry, there is psilocybin in species that aren't psilocybin. There is psilocybin in genera like inosibi, gymnopolis, and others. So the relationship of how a species is or and a genus is propagated, even if it houses these compounds, doesn't tell the story by itself. Mm-hmm. So these compounds are found in other genera as well that have the same mechanism of propagation. So it's not that simple to talk just about you know that one genus housing the species. We know that some of these hallucinogenic compounds are related to 
reactions that have nothing to do with propagation. There's no evidence of a direct relationship to inhibit ingestion from an animal. Animals eat psilocybe containing psilocybin and propagate them. And it doesn't seem to be something that deters them. Do you think it's something that attracts them? I mean, there are certain animals do seem to, I mean, they seem to. <laughs> uh, Homo sapiens are really attracted to them. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Just for, so we can cover our bases here with sort of taxonomy 101, since this is not an area I know much about, but you mentioned genera. Can you just walk us through the basics of what that stack looks like, please? So humans have convened to name species in a binomial system. So two names. And this was coined by Linnaeus, by Carl Linnaeus. And we still use that system in which we call a species with a first name, which is the genus, and a second name, which is the specific name. So the genus Psilocybe and the species Psilocybe cubensis, for example. And that binomial, those two names compose the way we talk about all species on earth. And we can go back up that system. It's the taxonomical system. And that's how we get to a kingdom. So we talk about kingdom of the fungi, kingdom of animals, kingdom of plants. And we break that down based on shared characteristics and finally, ultimately, get to the species name composed of genera and species. What is uh, between kingdom and then species? Well, let's talk about fungi. So, because we have kingdom of the fungi, then we have phyla. The phyla, in the case of plants, we talk about division, not phyla, but animals and fungi talk about phyla. Then class, order, family, genus, species. Oof. Yeah. I need to, I need to brush up. <laughs> it's a language. It's a language. Language matters, but it's a language in itself. And it's a language that not everybody should have to speak because it's a language that you can learn. Now, when you talk about the world's largest fungarium, Q Gardens, and you mentioned the holotype, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Is a holotype different from, what is the term? It just shot out of my head. Hold on one second. Is, is a holotype the same as a voucher specimen for plants, or is it different? A holotype is the first voucher. It's the voucher from which the species was described. It's the physical specimen that was the first to give the name to a species. I see. It's the for the first field sample. It's the first one. It's the one that was used to give the name. And then you can voucher many more of the species and deposit them in a fungarium. Um, so for example, I'm curator of the FFCL fungarium. We house over 2,000 specimens, vouchers, but we only have, I think, three holotypes. Let's talk about Jane Goodall. She's a friend and supporter of yours, and she's also been on the podcast. Tremendous woman, of course, incredible human being. How did she come into your life? Oh, Jane Goodall visited Chile, and I was invited to a dinner 
a small dinner that was held to welcome her. And I took her my books as a gift. I think it was actually only one book I had published at that moment. And I greeted her, listening to her in awe of this tremendous force of nature. And when I gave her the books, she she said, you know, this incredible, you know, the fungi, you're, you're absolutely right. We, we, they're, they're different from plants and animals. And, and I, I'm trying to make a point of acknowledging them as who they are. And it was, it was a very simple conversation. But the next day I went to one of her talks again and she came up to me and she said, Juliana, you know, I've been thinking and I've been looking at your work and your book and, you know, you are where I, you are with fungi where I once was with the chimps. Don't stop. She said, don't stop. I'll never forget her words. You know, this feeling of being a voice for the voiceless. She was, at the beginning of her career, a voice for chimpanzees when nobody was talking for them or about them. And what she had seen from from that first encounter with me to the next day where, where we met again, she had found out that I was working to voice for fungal justice, you know, justice for the fungi. And she acknowledged that. And that was the first encounter. And about a month later, I received a handwritten letter from Jane to my home in the post that said how much she had, you know, loved meeting me, how much she had been thinking about it. And for me to please excuse her because she had just written a book and she hadn't been in time to deliberately include the fungi. So it still only referred to plants and animals and that she was sorry and that she would make sure in her next book to acknowledge the fungi. Of course, <laughs> I have that letter very well. Yeah. yeah, that was my story with her. And then, and then over time, because of her support and her encouragement to not stop on my mission, there was something very acute in that bonding and that looking at each other. You know, we're both field scientists, both mothers. And being a mother field scientist takes some extra energy, let's put it that way. You know, in her case, she had put her son, you know, in a cage to protect him from harm. I've had to leave my son you know, for long times to go on expeditions. And, and, and it takes that higher understanding of your determination. And, and we, we saw that in each other. Hmm. She saw it in me and she acknowledged that. And so she's been fundamental and from then on has supported with reviews for, for books I've published afterwards and with endorsing the proposal to include fungi in language in, in conservation frameworks. She's amazing. She is amazing, uh, and and I, and I am going to ask you in a moment about the Chilean constitution, which is going to seem like a non sequitur to people who don't know what I'm talking about. We'll we'll get there. Before we do get there, I've only met Jane via Zoom or via teleconference, and she has a uniquely powerful presence, even on a screen, what is it like? Could you describe what it is like to spend time with her or to meet her in person? Okay. So I'm Italian, right? So she's like, a, she's like a mother. She's like a mother. She, she is sensorial. She hugs you. She will touch you. She will greet you. And because I'm also British, it's uncharacteristic of Brits. She's very physical, which is amazing. And she's very easy to reach. 
I think what Jane has that is, of course, something to admire and something I strive to achieve is really, really leaving yourself out of the picture and focusing on what your mission is for these organisms that you dedicate your life to. So how did you get fungi recognized in the Chilean constitution and why is that meaningful? Why is that a mission worth dedicating yourself to? They're recognized in a constitutional law. So it's not the actual text of the constitution. It's the law that is called the general law for the basis of the environment. So it's the highest legislative level. And really, there's an MO, there's a modus operandi on how to work for policy change. I learned that way of working while working in, I worked in Oceana, Chilean office of the US organization, Oceana. And I worked in a Chilean foundation called the Ram Foundation. And I was working around issues related to the negative environmental impacts of salmon farming. And so I learned a way of getting environmental issues recognized in regulation and legislation. And in 2010, there was an opening to modify the Chilean law. And when a law is open to comment, anything can happen. And that's why legislators are so reticent to even, you know, modifying a small word in, in legislation or regulation because it opens the opportunity for a lot more to change. And when that happened in 2010, I started driving the issue that fungi needed to be recognized on par as plants and animals. And so that really we cannot talk about an ecosystem if we don't acknowledge the fungi. A lot of international agencies had been pushing the world to adopt an ecosystemic view of nature. Now, what is an ecosystemic view of nature? It basically is the fact that nothing is independent from another, that everything is connected. The organisms that connect everything are the fungi. If we look at a forest, it's like, you know, the plants, the animals, they don't connect unless the fungi are there. The fungi are like the egg in a cake. If you're going to make a cake, and you have flour, and you have sugar, and you have butter. If you don't put egg in it, those ingredients don't stick together and you can't make the cake, right? And the fungi are that, like that egg. If they're not in the mix, all these ingredients and components don't stick together. So we went forward to Congress with a group of NGOs and made the case using fungi's astonishing attributes and charismatic data and said, Chile has been, is a country that has a poor environmental performance. There's international recommendation from different agencies to adopt an ecosystemic view of nature. The only way to do that is to recognize the fungi. We're a country that houses the first NGO on earth, the first nonprofit on earth that works for the fungi. So there was somebody pushing with the know-how of the environmental sector and after two years, two years, Tim, of talking to senators, talking to members of parliament, producing briefs that really made the case of, of why this was important, how it would be done, Chile became the first country in the world to recognize fungi in its law and then in its regulations. So 
honestly, the country has an ecosystemic view of nature. It doesn't look at plants and animals as separate from each other. It considers the organisms that unites it all. What are your hopes for the implications or consequences of that? Where do you hope it to go might be a better way to put it. I'm happy to see that it's going towards global recognition of fungi in policy on an international level. Today, I am very proud to say that large conservation bodies have adopted mycologically inclusive language in how they communicate nature. So Rewild, the organization that was co-founded by Leo DiCaprio in a rebrand it had from Global Wildlife Conservation, has adopted the use of fungi in its language, uh, acknowledgement of fungi in its language. The IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, is talking about plants, animals, and fungi, and flora, fauna, and fungi. They are acknowledging the existence of the kingdom of the fungi in policy and regulations and legislation recommendations. And so my hope is that we leave the obsolete term of fauna and flora behind, that we start talking about fauna, flora, and funga. Funga is the word that delimits fungal diversity of a given place, that we stop talking about animals and plants as macroscopic life on earth only, that we talk about animals, fungi, and plants. Because language creates reality. And if we are still constantly discarding their existence through language or not acknowledging their existence and their role in language, we will never be able to create funding streams for their research. We will never be able to create policy for their inclusion in education. We will never be able to really create the pipelines and the systems by which the nature-based solutions that fungi hold can be brought to light. My hope for the future is that in at least my lifetime's effort, people will acknowledge in language their importance and their existence and that they will be considered in policy for education and conservation everywhere. It's so important to underscore what you said about language creating reality. Right? If you want to affect change in policy or regulation, the language that is used is so important. I mean, the labels we use sort of determine what we see and don't see. I can't remember, I think it was either Wittgenstein or Goethe who said the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And yes. I think that's very, very, very true. Let me ask you, if we step back for a second, to come back to an earlier comment, if fungi and animals have this common ancestor, this kind of fork in the road Mm -hmm. that might be represented by this posterior flagellum Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so on, what are the, if there are any implications of that, or if if we think about fungi being closer to animals or humans than to plants, if that's a defensible statement. What does that mean? Does it mean more than just the sort of academic understanding or agreement that there is this common ancestor? What does that represent or mean to you? I mean, for for people listening, I would imagine that's kind of a question that comes to mind. It, It means a lot. First of all, it's a fact. 
we are more closely related to fungi than fungi are to plants. So fungi really are more closely related to, to animals. It's hugely important because if we look at, for example, I'm going to use an example, penicillin. Penicillin is an antibiotic that has changed the fate of humanity because let's convene that before the First World War, you could have died from an infection from a paper cut. And it's thanks to penicillin and these antibiotics, especially penicillin, that we can cure infection. Now, penicillin is a, an antibiotic produced by fungi to protect themselves from bacteria. Now, the fact that we're so closely related to fungi implies that it works for us too. That's wild. I've never heard anyone put it that way. It yeah. works for us too. We have the sensitivity to be able to use it because we defend ourselves from infection the same way that fungi do. And it's because we're related. Wow. So that's a huge implication. And that's probably the best way, the most graphic way to say it. So if we were to make a list of reasons or give a few reasons why it's important to protect fungi, I would love to hear your take. I mean, one that comes to mind, which you alluded to earlier with a comment about touching the mushroom or picking up the mushroom and seeing if any animals come out. So you could have worms, insects come out of a mushroom, in which case, if you lose a species, this is your wording, so I don't want to <laughs> make, make, make any claim to this wording, but if you lose a species, you're not just losing an individual, you're losing an ecosystem, right? So there's that. There is the fact that given our sort of shared origins or biological overlap, something like penicillin and future discoveries could be made that could have enormous medical or therapeutic implications for humans. What are some other reasons why it is important to pay attention to this? And part of the reason I bring it up is that with deforestation or replacement of biodiverse forests with, say, pine farms and things of this type, you can dramatically reduce, dramatically, dramatically reduce, whatever it is, you know, 50, 100 fold reduce the biodiversity of fungi in a given area. Why is it important to preserve fungi and to really pay attention to this? What are some other reasons? Plants can't live out of water without fungi that live on or in their roots. So we can go as essential as the fact that without the fungi, life on earth wouldn't be as we know it. Plants, trees are incapable of living in soil without their symbiotic fungi. They can't synthesize the nutrients of the soil by themselves. Herbivores can't break down the cellulose cell wall of the grass they eat or the plants they eat without the fungi in their gut that do it for them. So we know that energy is not lost. Energy is transformed. The organisms that transform energy in nature are the decomposers, the fungi, the bacteria. Without the fungi, nothing would decompose 
nothing would regenerate because nothing would degenerate. And so fungi are essential to life on earth as we know it in terms of symbiosis, helping plants and animals live, and in terms of decomposing, which is really the start of the life cycle, depending on, I mean, it's arguable here, you know, depending on where you stand in a cycle is where that cycle begins. For mycologists, the cycle begins when things start to rot. The death of a life form isn't the end of life. It's the beginning of other life forms. And that's what fungi teach you, that the process of decomposition and rotting is the start of a cycle and it's the start of the creation of the conditions for life to compose. So ultimately, without the fungi, plants couldn't live out of water. Nothing would decompose. Animals wouldn't be able to nourish themselves from plants. And in terms of humanity, nothing would ferment and therefore we wouldn't be able to preserve anything. And so many fundamental food and medicine functions wouldn't be available without fungi. Fungi are essential to life as we know it. We cannot live without them. There is no life without them on earth. So why don't you tell us more about the Fungi Foundation? What is the charter, the objective, or the mission, or all of the above, of the Fungi Foundation? Oh, the Fungi Foundation is the mycological platform that I founded to ensure that anybody who wants to know more about fungi, wants to work for the fungi, has a place to go to and find an answer, which is what I didn't have when I started. It's an organization that was born in Chile, founded here in Chile, that has had important policy success, that has now opened in the US. We are a global organization. We're 501c3 in the United States of America. We are an organization that enables people to understand the wonder and the awe of Kingdom of the Fungi. And we are extremely ambitious in what we want to achieve as durable change. We have five overarching programs. One is the expeditions program, in which we go to places where nobody's ever been before to see what fungi there are the last wild places on earth, those habitats you were talking about that are being destroyed at rates that we've, we've never seen before on earth. Because fungi have so many of these nature-based solutions like medicine, food, textiles, um, we want to document those species before they're lost forever. And tied to that, we have a conservation program that takes action for them not to be lost forever. So we work in the proposal of public policy for their protection. We work to assess their threat of extinction through red listing. What is red listing? Red listing is 
estimating the probability of extinction of a fungus or a species. So not only animals and plants can go extinct, fungi can too. And the process of red listing determines how close or how far we are to extinction for a species. So through the tool of red listing, we can make the case of policies and management plans to protect those species in those last wild places. We also have an elders program, which is, it's a line of work that is very dear to me as, as is expeditions. And what we've taken on is to map every known ancestral and traditional use of fungi by humanity. And that map is very well advanced. We have collected both published information and oral history from different parts of the world that talk of how humanity has culturally co-evolved with fungi to weave baskets, to make sunblock, to dye fibers, to be used as symbols of power, to treat infertility, to treat wounds. And so that program really is a reservoir. It's like the Noah's Ark of fungal solutions for the world. And it's a huge responsibility we have. It's never been done before. And last but not least, I would say, our work in education. We believe that in schools around the world, children should be taught as much about fungi as they are taught about plants and animals. And to do that, fungi have to be included in school curriculum. We have developed a, a curriculum and we have co-created part of that curriculum with Fantastic Fungi. And I'm happy to say that the Fungi Foundation will be implementing a school curriculum paired to U.S. standards, will be implementing in the U.S. and in other parts of the world so that children can learn about fungi in school. Now, that's a huge task. But if you think about it, Tim, 50 years ago, when people studied in school and they studied the cell, nobody knew that the cell had, you know, a mitochondria, a mitochondria, which is this, you know, structure inside a cell that has its own DNA, it has its own information. You know, my mother didn't study the cell with the mitochondria. Today, you wouldn't think about teaching the cell without teaching about the mitochondria. My hope is that in 30 years, 40 years, you would never dare teach about um, nature without fungi having their own explicit uh, modules and curriculum. So mm. we're building that. So those are some of the things we're doing. The organization is blessed to have Paul Stamets on its board, to have Natalie Kelly on its board, Joanna Foster, who is a winemaker in Argentina and other places with amazing natural wines. And Antonio Basigalupo and Jose Mingo, who are, who are founding members. So we're a pioneering organization. And we've been faced with the challenge of bringing justice to fungi through formal inclusion and, and all, everything I've mentioned, but at the same time of being trailblazers and trying to find a way for this to happen for the fungi. And people can learn more at ffungi.org. Is yes. that right? Yes. All right. Wonderful. And we will mention that again. I will mention that again, and we will also include it in the show notes. 
what other sources of inspiration and knowledge have greatly influenced you? Let's start with books. Are there any any particular books that have greatly influenced you with respect to mushrooms, mycology, fungi, nature? And are there any books that you would most recommend to others? Perhaps they're the same, perhaps they're different. Books that have greatly inspired me recently is Merlin Sheldrake's book, Entangled Life. I love it. I've read it several times. Entangled Life is a must read. If I look back, there are different titles of Chilean authors that have really inspired me. Luis Sepúlveda has written some, some amazing books that short stories, but that really talk about the complexity of, of life and the simplicity also with which you can face complexity. I love that. Yeah. I have drawn inspiration from authors like Luis Sepulveda, who even if you read deep into complex authors like, you know, Milan Kundera or, you know, or others, you can always from these huge complexities find simplicity. And that's been, I think, what has inspired me from everything I read is finding simplicity from complexities. I would say that authors like Gabriela Mistral have been important. Galeano, Eduardo Galeano, an important, also a very important author. So a lot of Latin American books, really into that. I just pulled up Luis Sepulveda. Yes. And it seems like quite a bit of his work has also been translated. And in addition to Spanish, he speaks English, French, and Italian, or spoke, I should say, he passed away in 2020. Yeah. And in the, in the late 80s, he conquered the literary scene. This is from Wikipedia. I'm impressed with the wording. With his first yeah. novel, The Old Man Who Read Love Novels. So very well yeah. known. Very and well I known. would definitely recommend one of his titles, which I will translate directly from the Spanish, but it's the story of a seagull and of the cat that taught it to fly. Yeah, there, that, it is. I, there it is. I highly recommend that book. It's very yeah. short. And then another one of his titles that is extraordinary is The World of the End of the World. And it talks about the Southern Cone. But it really, yeah. there is a lot of beauty and, and a lot of life learning in his novels mm. that can take complexities and, and show you sometimes how simple something complex can be. The World at the End of the World, that's from 1989. Mundo del yeah. Fin del Mundo. Sounds so good in Spanish. And then The Story of a Seagull and the Cat Who Taught Her to Fly in 1996. That's which, a fantastic book. Which seems like it was originally published in Portuguese. I'm not going to not gonna hazard to try to pronounce <laughs> that. I'll get 40% of it right. Yeah. In your own life, or mm -hmm. looking forward, it could be related to your mission, it could be in life in general, can you think of any examples of facing complexity with simplicity or finding the elegant or simple way to look at or contend with something that appears complex? Absolutely. I mean, positioning yourself, you know, as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old faced with an overwhelming fungal passion, fungal duty, and ineludable responsibility towards the kingdom of the fungi in a world where 
they are associated to rot, to death, to paganism. Founding, you know, the world's first NGO in a world where absolutely no funding existed at all and still hardly exists for anything fungal in terms of policy. You know, we're talking about before the film Fantastic Fungi, before psilocybe was recognized as medicine in the Western world. That is the most complex scenario I've ever been faced with. And in that huge complexity and adversity, I found the simplicity of belief in yourself, first thing. I mean, it couldn't be that this thing that just wouldn't stop and would only grow inside me and this vision that I could see possible, it couldn't be that it didn't exist. And so as complex and as as adverse as the environment was, the simple-looking inside and giving yourself permission to try and to do it has been the most fundamental thing. And it still is that way. We are still, you know, when you talk to people and you say, you know, I work for mushrooms and I work looking for mushrooms, protecting mushrooms, making sure that everybody knows about mushrooms. Most people look at you and think, you know, what are you doing? You know, why? Why would you do that? I mean, how can you live like that? How can you feed your son from doing that? You know, and the answer is inside and the answer is in hard work. So that's what I've learned from complexity, mm-hmm. simplicity of looking in. I certainly hope you're right that in maybe not 30, maybe 20, maybe 10 years that people will look back and the answer will be very obvious as to why you would dedicate yourself to fungi in the same way that if someone were to say today, I dedicate myself to plants in X, Y, and Z capacity, or I dedicate myself to preservation and conservation of animals in X, Y, and Z capacity, they would not have that surprised response. Yeah. And if you look at the importance of fungi, mycelium, mushrooms, as not just the egg in the cake, I think, as you put it, the connective tissue that binds plants and animals together, but also as close cousins of ours from which so many discoveries are waiting to be found or within which so many discoveries are waiting to be found. I think it's, it's a real imperative to, to study, but you can only study that which you preserve in a sense. And it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. I think also, Tim, in this hyper-connected world, I have learned, and I'm, I'm very grateful to be of a generation that wasn't as hyper-connected in our teens. I have learned that it's important to be more with yourself than with others all day. I mean, I see people today constantly looking at what others are doing and constantly looking and trying to reflect themselves in 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 what others choose to share and how important it is when you believe in something when you have an idea to take the time with yourself to develop it to investigate what you're thinking about we all can make a contribution if we give ourselves the time and space to develop our contribution and not be constantly looking for 
everybody else's contribution in a way. So this hyperconnectivity, I think, is not helping us to be able to take on these paths of in-depth, you know, study results aren't always immediate. You know, it yeah. takes a long time and it's okay for it to take a long time. You don't present an idea and then the next day have a result. It takes a long time. It takes hard work. And you can't do that if you're constantly looking at everybody else's life. Yeah, agreed. If I can't remember the attribution, but if if music is the space between the notes in some respects, you know, thinking and discovery are the spaces between the interactions sometimes. Yeah. And if the density is such that you're saturated with communication, saturated with stimulation, there just isn't the space for that germination. Yeah. And I'm going to make an awkward segue, but I have to ask you before we go, because I've heard so much about the Telluride Mushroom Festival, and I've never been. I I have friends who have spent lots of time in Telluride and love Telluride quite in and of itself. I've also never been to Telluride. And you will be going there very soon, I think in mid-August or mid to late August, August 19th, something like that. Yes, I will be giving a keynote on August 19th, yeah. Can you describe the Telluride Mushroom Festival, what it is, why it's interesting, and also what you'll be presenting on, what you'll be doing your keynote about? Telluride Mushroom Festival is a must. Tim, you have to go to the Telluride Mushroom Festival. It is a (laughs) safe place to express fungal love and adoration. That's one thing I have to say. It's the oldest festival in the US dedicated to fungi. It's in its 41st edition. It was founded by four extraordinary men, Paul Stamets, Andy Whale, Emmanuel Salzberg, and Gary Linkoff. Now, this festival was the first place in the US where people could get together and talk about psychedelics and entheogens. And it has had some of the world's most renowned mycologists talking about the science of these species. It has the world's most renowned psychiatrists talking about the psychedelic renaissance. And even before the renaissance, let's let's face it, you know, it's been a house to talk about, to research, to think about, and to celebrate psychedelic mushrooms and anything mushroom in general. I have had the honor of participating for about six years now, so a very small portion of its existence. And my first feeling there was, there are more of us. That was the first thing. (laughs) I'm not the only one. (laughs) I'm not the only one. You know, I found my tribe there. And for the last five years, I've had the honor of moderating the final panel with important people talking and thinking about fungi and psychedelic fungi like Dennis McKenna, Dave Nichols, and many others where we can sit down and have a candid conversation and talk about things nobody really wants to talk about in a scientific paper and that maybe they won't say in a press, in the press. So it's a very safe and candid space to talk and to ask about psychedelics and really anything fungal. There's a lot of, you know, cooking with fungi, a lot of foraging, information about foraging. There's a lot of practical 
you know, workshops on how to cultivate or decompose, you know, toxic substances with, with fungi. So it's an extraordinary space. This year, Paul Stamets will also be going and giving a keynote. So it's a great year, just saying. And my keynote will be on our global policy work for conservation frameworks. So the Fungi Foundation is known for making change, political change in Chile, but we have now taken that to the world and we have had some important international policy wins that I will be presenting and showing at the festival. That is very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Just a few more questions. Dame of the Order of the Star. I did not look this up (laughs) deliberately because I wanted to ask you about it. That is the coolest title I think I've ever heard in my life. What is, what does it mean to be a a Dame of the Order of the Star? Okay. So the Order of the Star, first of all, it's, you know, I was, how, how do I say, I was honored with the title of being Dame of Italy. And there are different orders of damehood. So the Order of the Star is a house of celebrated Italian citizens that weren't born on Italian soil. Mm. So if I were born on Italian soil, I wouldn't be part of the Order of the Star. So the Order of the Star is exclusive to Italians who have made a contribution to the country from somewhere else. And I was named Dame of the Order of the Star of Italy because of my work in mycology and for the fungi. Man, I really, I'm so sad (laughs) that business cards are no longer really a thing because if you print new business cards, if that ever happens, maybe there's still a thing in some places. I really hope that that is somewhere on that business card. It is just spectacular. (laughs) Juliana, Juliana Furci, Furci with the trill. Yeah. F-U-R-C-I. I'm so impressed by you and the work that you do. And I would like to heavily encourage people to go to ffungi.org. And I would like to also contribute to your work in a small way. I'd like to donate $50,000 from my foundation to your foundation to the Fungi Foundation, and I would like to encourage other people to take a look at the work, take a close look at the work that you do, and consider supporting it. I think what you're doing is very important. And I'll say the website one more time, because I would really encourage people to take a look. You've been very dedicated. You've taken the true and the hard path. You've made a lot of sacrifices. I know it hasn't been easy. You've been incredibly strong. And like you said, you've had wins and the Fungi Foundation is pursuing an important mission. So I'm very excited to support with my own foundation. And I encourage people to take a look and consider doing the same. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you very much on behalf of the team and the board. That's emotion coming through the microphone, which isn't... um, Thank you very much. We've, We've never had support like that before. Thank you very, very much. It's my and pleasure. I, I um, hope to make you proud and 
we will make durable change for the fungi. <laughs> and uh, and someday we'll have to share some mate together. And if and hopefully in Telluride, uh, we're yeah, in a forest. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So if I make it to Telluride, and I, I also would encourage people to check out the festival and to to hear your keynote in person. I have heard tremendous things about the festival. I mean, tremendous. 10 out of 10 recommendations from multiple people I deeply respect and also multiple friends who know me really well. <laughs> so it's really, it's really just a matter of time before I get there myself. I have to say that this year, for those listening, Paul Stamets is also known as Pablo. So uh, Pablo doesn't go every year. He doesn't go every year. He's going this year and it's going to be an extraordinary festival. He is going to be giving a keynote as well. And I encourage you to consider popping in. It's not very long. It's a few days. And the community that exists there is extraordinary. And the opportunity to talk to people who are trailblazing, thinking, and debating and creation around access to use of psychedelic medicine through access to cultivating your own foods and medicines, through access to foraging and access to talking to people who are dedicating their lives to bringing justice to the fungi. I highly recommend it. And this, no year is better than this year. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to have to take a close look at my calendar in that case. And Juliana, is there anything else you would like to say? You Any call to action? You got me. Emotion. That was offside. I'm just calling this out now. Thank you very much. You know, we're not we're not used to any help like this. So thank you. I'm just saying. Give me a moment. I can't continue as if nothing's happened. Take, take, yeah, take, take a minute. No problem. Thank you so much. It's only been you know ten years. <laughs> trying, trying to ever, you know, our 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 um our work is um. Thank you. I don't. I don't. There's nothing to say. But yeah. I don't want to explain anything. I just want to say thank you. And I wish I could give you a hug and give you some. I wouldn't give you this mate lavado. I'd make you a new mate. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Let me um, gather my thoughts. <laughs> oh gosh, shoot. Can I just add also when I received your email saying that you had seen some of the some of the videos, I was like, oh shit, I wonder what he's seen. <laughs> <laughs> and then I I actually misleadingly thought, oh, let me think of what's been done in English. And now I know that you might have seen what was in Spanish. So <laughs> now I'm feeling even worse. Like, oh no, what has he seen? But no. Well, I was impressed. And not turned away. I was not discouraged in any way. And I'm so happy that uh, we were able to connect and to do yeah. this. And yeah. I've really learned so much. I have tons of notes, tons of things <laughs> to follow up on. I'm going to check out Luis Sepulveda. Okay, so your, your question, your question. No, my question is not a mandatory question. It's, just, it's very simple. Is there anything else you would like to say before we wrap up? Any request of the audience? Any Thing you'd like to share anything at all really before yeah. we close this conversation i would really like to invite people to think about how important it is to let things rot and that it's really not about rock and roll anymore it's about rotten mold 
and we <laughs> have to let things rot. You know, rotten mold, baby, all all the time. If we don't let things rot, then cycles don't start, don't flow. We can't fix carbon. We can't decompose to be able to recompose. We can't degenerate to be able to regenerate. I would really like to invite people to think about how even the most glorious moment of an old tree's life is when that tree falls to the ground and starts decomposing and turns back into soil. Let's not be afraid about decomposition. And there's a lot of hype around regeneration and that can't happen if things don't rot. Got to let it rot. Got to let yeah. it rot. Let it rot. <laughs> and and I, I'm, I'm going to cheat and ask one more question. We gave a few, or you gave a few book recommendations and Tangled Life and, and other novels and so on. Yeah. If someone wanted to take their first steps into learning more about fungi, yeah, about could be mushrooms. I mean, pick your mm-hmm. term. Are there one or two books that you might suggest people take a look at? I suggest a film and then a book. So watch Fantastic Fungi and then read Entangled Life. And another maybe another fun, really fun way is to read. The Triumph of the Fungi by Nicholas P. Money. Now, Nick Money has several books about fungi. There's a book called The Rise of the Yeast as well. And it's about the story of how yeast has shaped humanity. So Nicholas P. Money is a must read to learn in a lighter way, in a less scientific way but in a really well-informed and referenced and real way about how, how fungi have shaped the planet. Beautiful. And may they continue to, to support and shape the planet, and hopefully with our help and in part vis-a-vis the Fungi Foundation. And people can find the Fungi Foundation at ffungi.org. You can find Juliana Furci. I love just, I'm trying to get it right. At Julie Fungi, G-I-U-L-I-F-U-N-G-I. Also at Fungi Foundation on Instagram. And we will include links to everything we discussed in addition to all of that at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And what a tremendous pleasure and hope to see you in person, meet you in person very soon indeed. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for the space. Absolutely. My pleasure. And to everyone listening, let things rot. Learn more about fungi, your close cousins. And until next time, thank you for tuning in. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and 
that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Eight Sleep. My God, am I in love with Eight Sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer. More than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep, and I'm a member of that sad group. Temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep, and heat has always been my nemesis. I've suffered for decades, tossing and turning, throwing blankets off, putting them back on, and repeating ad nauseum. But now, I am falling asleep in record time, faster than ever. Why? Because I'm using a simple device called the Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep. It's the easiest and fastest way to sleep at the perfect temperature. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking to offer the most advanced but most user-friendly solution on the market. I polled all of you guys on social media about the best tools for sleep, enhancing sleep, and 8sleep was by far and away the crowd favorite. I mean, people were just raving fans of this. So I used it and here we are. Add the Pod Pro cover to your current mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. It also splits your bed in half so your partner can choose a totally different temperature. My girlfriend runs hot all the time. She doesn't need cooling. She loves the heat. And we can have our own bespoke temperatures on either side, which is exactly what we're doing. Now for me, and for many people, the result, eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by up to 40%, and get more restful sleep overall. I can personally attest to this because I track it in all sorts of ways. It's the total solution for enhanced recovery, so you can take on the next day feeling refreshed. And now, my dear listeners, that's you guys, you can get $250 off of the Pod Pro cover. That's a lot. Simply go to 8sleep.com slash Tim or use code Tim. That's eight, all spelled out, E-I-G-H-T, sleep.com slash Tim, or use coupon code Tim, T-I-M, eightsleep.com slash Tim for $250 off your Pod Pro cover. This episode is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is reinventing men's basics. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I've been smashing and testing the hell out of a bunch of their stuff, and I'm gonna focus on their underwear as one example. I've been wearing their Air Knit X five-inch boxer briefs for a while now, and I absolutely love them. I've used them to hike in national parks like Big Bend. I use them to record podcasts. They can be used for anything. They're engineered to keep you dry, cool, and comfortable to the end of your workout or workday. The fabric is soft, lightweight microfiber, which maximizes airflow and stretches in every direction. It's breathable, moisture wicking, and odor fighting, which is great for a bridge troll like me. Here's what a few critics have to say. New York Times slash Wirecutter evaluated Mack Weldon's 18-hour jersey boxer brief. Here we go. Quote, our testers seemed almost conflicted about how fancy they felt while wearing these boxer briefs. Quote, these are lovely. You put them on and you feel rich, one tester said. This underwear makes me want to waste money on a hotel room and fancy booths to seduce my already wife and spoil her right, added another. Now to Esquire. Quote, an expertly executed pair of briefs from a brand that doesn't better than almost anyone else. End quote. Now to Men's Health. Quote, Mack Weldon took the process seriously with over 10,000 hours to perfect the best underwear money can buy. Seriously, this one checks all the boxes you should be looking for when purchasing underwear. End quote. 
Now back to me. Mack Weldon also covers a lot more than underwear. They have socks, shirts, underwear, hoodies, polos, active shorts. They check all the boxes. Mack Weldon promises comfort and a consistent fit for all of your basics. So check them out and try them out. If you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can actually keep them and they will still refund you, no questions asked. So you have nothing to lose. Again, my favorite so far is probably the Air Knit X 5-inch boxer briefs. It seems like the 18-hour jersey boxer brief is one of the most popular. So check them out. To get 20% off of your first order, visit macweldoncom slash TimTim and enter promo code TimTim. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com slash TimTim and use promo code TimTim. Mac Weldon, reinventing men's basics.